Our text this morning is from 1 John 2, 15 through 17. You can find this on page 1021 in the Bibles placed on the chairs in front of you. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. The world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God remains forever. This is the word of the Lord. You've got the idea. You may be seated. Uh, I am Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here at Grace. I'm so thankful that you all have joined us, whether you are joining us online or you are here in person. I am thankful, as always, to be sharing the Word of God. I, um, I hope that your experience has been the same as mine. I've really been enjoying studying First John. Again, it's been a long time since I've gone in-depth on this book, and I have to admit that for years... Uh, a long time ago, um, in my early Christian days, I would read First John, and the weight of legalism would rest upon my shoulders. I mean, honestly, I looked at it through a lens of performance, and I thought, uh, that, man, I have to get this right, because if I don't get it right, I obviously don't love God. And if I don't love God, man, I'm in big trouble. And so it's been great to just be reminded um, of how to understand this book through a gospel lens, through the truth of the gospel that God loves us first, that God works in our lives, and as he works in our lives, we change. Um, And so John uh, is basically saying, listen, our love for God is a total mess because we are a total mess. (laughs) We're a total mess, but God is not a mess, and God's love is eternal and perfect, and it's deep for those in Christ. God is the cause, he's the continuation, he's the conclusion of our salvation, and that's the context in which we hear these words of the Apostle John. And so uh, John really is giving us the idea that discipleship is not about making the grade, thank goodness. Discipleship is not about doing the right things, behaving the right ways, it's primarily about recognizing God's love for us, the love that he gave first And so that theme continues in this particular passage. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into 1 John 2, 15 through 17. Father in heaven, have mercy on us. Bring the peace of your spirit here this morning. Speak to our hearts. Free us from that lens of performance. Free us from the burden of our sin. And give us the freedom and the peace that only comes from knowing your love that has been expressed in Jesus Christ, our Savior. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay. A quick quiz. You're Presbyterians. You need permission. You can speak back on this one, all right? You can talk back. I've got some questions. Who wrote 1 John? Oh, boy. That's what this rag is here for when I start feeling I'm not doing my job correctly. Who wrote 1 John? John, that's right. What else did John write? These are pretty easy questions. 
What, John, okay, he wrote the, the Gospel of John. What's the most famous verse in the Gospel of John? John 3, 16. Uh, come on up and recite it, Jonathan. I just, no, just kidding. Uh, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. John 3, 16. Depending on what version you're looking at, that could be right or wrong. Um, so listen, hold on. Let's read, keep in mind John 3, 16. Let's read verse 15. All right, keep John 3, 16 to mind. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, hold on a second. I thought that God's love, the love of the Father, would first mean a love of the world. Is he contradicting himself? I think we have to look at these two verses and the differences to kind of get an idea of what it means to love the world in this context. So first, a couple of ideas that come from the differences here. What is love of the world? First of all, we have to look at our corrupt love versus God's perfect love. When God loves the world, what does he do? He gives everything. He gives his son to save the people of the world. When he sees the world, he sees the people and he loves them. When we see the world in our corrupt hearts, what do we do? We see what we can get from it. <laughs> And we try to take everything we can for ourselves. And so this is, I think, one of the great reasons as we go back to what we talked about last week, this intensified love, the, the, the commandment of Jesus. Who, he said, yes, love your neighbor as yourself, but it's a, it's a little deeper than that. Love your neighbor as I have loved you. Because when we love our kind of love, it ends up selfish. It ends up sinful. But when we love the kind of love that God loves, it's a lot of love. We love the world and the people in it. So first of all, we have to understand that, that John is not talking about a, a, a being that loves perfectly. He's talking to people who love from a corrupt heart. So that's the first thing we have to understand. The second thing is, as he speaks about loving the world and the things of the world, he's not speaking of the people in the world. John would never say, stop loving the people in the world. What is he talking about? He's talking about the attitudes, the values, and the ideologies of the world attitudes, the values, and the ideology. So loving people, church, unfortunately, if you got excited this morning because you could stop loving people because of verse 15, that's off the table. Loving people as Christ has loved us is a non-negotiable for those in Christ. And so John's not interested in having us stop our love of people, but he is very interested in us being more than cautious in our dealings with the world. To the point where he might even say, listen, as we love people in the world, we have to watch ourselves. As we befriend the world, we have to watch ourselves because what do we want to do? We are like sponges. We want to soak up the attitudes, the values, and the ideologies of the world. That's what he's saying in verse 15. And so let's talk about the attitudes, the values, and the ideologies of the world why are they so dangerous for us? If you look at verse 16, we get the idea that the attitudes, values, and ideologies of the world are basically bait for our sinful hearts. They're bait for our sinful hearts. Now he gives in verse 16, let me read it for us. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. These things are, you could look at them as categories of sins. You could look at them as descriptions of sin, but I want to start with this idea that they are not new. They're not new. These types of sin are not new. Let's go all the way back to Adam and Eve. 
The first sin ever is recorded in Genesis 3.6. Listen with these categories in mind, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Listen to the sin of Adam and Eve. Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, yum, yum, okay, desires of the flesh. It doesn't say yum, yum in there. That wasn't reading the scripture at that point. Uh, And that it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Listen, sinful hearts have not changed. These things are still the things that draw us in when our flesh is active and we see the things of the world, their attitudes, their values, their idolatries. We're drawn in. We're drawn in. Our sinful hearts are inevitably ensnared in the attitudes, values, and ideologies of the world. And so we must be careful. I want us to take a few moments. We're going to tease out these three categories of sin. I want us to make sure that we understand exactly what they're saying. And so we're going to spend the next few moments just doing that. Desires of the flesh. Another way to think about this is the idea that we can be satisfied through our senses. Satisfied, there's going to be a lot of S's in here. Those of you like alliteration, you're going to, you should be excited. Satisfaction through senses. So it's looking for satisfaction in our experiences. There's a lot of different versions of this. It could be this phrase in our hearts. If I could just watch this thing, I will be satisfied. Now that could range all the way from from pornography to sports to your favorite sitcom to reality TV to it could be entertainment in general. We, We think if we watch it or if we watch enough of it, we will feel this certain salve for our hearts. We'll feel satisfied. And so some questions I believe John would have us ask. Why are we watching it? Is there a lie that we're believing? Man, if I could just watch one more episode, if I could just do this thing one more time, are we expecting it to bring some form of peace in our life by intaking that thing? So that's That's watching this thing. I think about travel. What is the promise of the world about traveling? If I could just go to that place and smell those smells and taste that food and see those sights, my life would be perfect. If I could just travel the world. I didn't want to talk about this one because I struggle, but if I just taste this thing, if I just taste it, I'll be satisfied. I've always had mad respect. You can make that a hashtag for today's sermon. I've never done that before. Hashtag mad respect. Um, For the folks who can take like two bites of a dessert and then push it away. I'm like more like, hey, four servings, please, if I like it. Um, But but that is silliness, and we like to laugh about it. But really, what is happening in my heart when that happens? I think if I could just taste that food one more time, I would be fine. I would feel this, sati- this rush of satisfaction. It would all be just great. We do this with emotions. If I could just feel this feeling, whether that be love or anger, either way, if I could just really let loose on that person, I would feel great. If I could just have that relationship, I would feel wonderful. What is John saying? These are lies. They're lies. They do not satisfy. And that's the tricky thing about all the things I just mentioned. God gave us laughter. God gave us entertainment. God gave us the the world and his creation to find wonder and awe in him. 
Think about this. When you find the perfect French fry and it's crunchy on the outside and soft in the middle and it's got starch and fat and salt, it's a love letter to French fries this morning. When you find it, God created that, all those mechanisms for you to enjoy that thing that way. These are good things. Emotions are good things. What's our problem then? Our problem is when we make a good thing the main thing. And we do this with everything. We do it. When we take created things and we think that those created things will take us all the way to satisfaction, that's where the problem lies. That's the desires of the flesh. This idea that we can find satisfaction in our senses. Hope you're having fun. That's a joke. Um, desires of the eyes. Let's move on. Satisfaction through stuff. Satisfaction through stuff. I was thinking of some sayings that uh, kind of um, uh, exemplify this idea. Have you ever heard this one? Uh, you, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. Okay, you never see a What's the idea behind that, I, that, that silly phrase is we, we collect and gather and build an inventory of things and then we die and we can't take them with us. Another one I was thinking of, and I'm glad they're here this morning, keeping up with the Joneses, specifically Rebecca and Stephen. Um, you guys got to stop. We're trying. It's just too impossible. Um, listen, here's some harsh realities. There will always be someone who makes more money than us. There will always be someone who goes on better vacations than us. There will always be someone who drives a better car than us. There will always be someone who dresses nicer or cooler or whatever, more chic than us. There will always be something more that we haven't and can't attain. And so the questions we might ask, why am I buying this? Do I need it? Can I use this money to bless someone else? Now, there's only two items, two categories of items in the scriptures that I see any kind of exemption for, and it's because Jesus was a carpenter and the disciples were fishermen. So if you're buying tools or fishing gear, I think those are the only two things <laughs> that there's any, that's not true. That, I just was trying to justify that to myself, and I tried to slip it in, but the Spirit's really convicting me at this point. So... No, I mean, seriously, what do we spend our money on? Do we think that if we have enough things that suddenly it's going to click and everything's going to be okay? John's saying it's a lie. It's a lie. Finally, we come to the pride of life, and this is the lie that we can find satisfaction through personal significance. Satisfaction through personal significance. Maybe it's finding our identity in our possessions. Maybe not the, the quantity of our possessions, but the quality of our possessions. Could be finding our identity in our accomplishments, our resume. Maybe it's uh, finding our significance in our occupation, our children, even our ministry at church. Maybe it's finding your significance in the fact that you feel like you have a good ha handle on the desire of the eyes and the desires of the flesh. The pride of life is finding your significance in anything but Jesus Christ. Sin has not changed. Sin was and is and, and will be a, a rejection of God's love, a rejection of God's grace, a rejection of God's 
provision, his truth. And John, I love this, he doesn't mince words. He exposes these things, these worldly promises for what they are in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. They're completely temporary. They don't last, even a little bit. I don't know if you're familiar with the law of diminishing returns. Um, Investopedia, I looked it up to see if I could find a simple definition. It wasn't very simple, so let me explain it this way. There's this idea, it comes from the world, but the idea in its simplest form is that in production and in our lives, you can do certain things, and as you add certain factors and do more things, they do increase productivity, but at one time, there's this certain place in that equation where adding more makes it less. I took economics at the University of Maine, and this is how my professor described it. I'm just gonna tell you how he did. That first cold beer is really delicious. That second cold beer is a little less delicious, and by the time you get to your eighth cold beer, it's not nearly as good. And I thought, man, this guy's got some struggles. Eight, okay. But that's how I remember it. He, 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 when we try to add more and more and more, what happens eventually, church? It becomes less, 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 less. That's how it's designed. They're created things. To satisfy them is never what they were meant to do. So the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, John is saying they do not, they cannot satisfy. Eventually, more, more, more becomes less, less, less. The pride of life, life is fragile. It can blow up in our faces at any moment. Someone just this week sent me a picture from six years ago of the thousand-year flood. I wasn't around for this thing, but he showed me uh, floodwaters all the way up to the road signs. These are things we can't control. You align the right factors, the stock market will crash. You align the right factors, your job will go away. You align the right factors, you will get sick. These are things that, that the pride of life cannot shoulder, cannot sustain. And so what is all our alternative to all this unsatisfactory scrambling? Is there such a thing as permanent satisfaction? And, and John's answer is yes, and it's actually interwoven. The answer to that question is interwoven into 1 John 2, 15 through 17. His answer actually begins, I read it as the benediction last week, but there's a series of promises he makes in verses 12 through 14 to those who are in Christ. These are truths. They're not things we have to earn. They're things that God has given when we were in Christ. Here's what they are. Your sins are forgiven. You know him who is from the beginning. You have overcome the evil one in Christ. You know the Father. You are strong in the Spirit. God abides in you. This is a strong reminder of the freedom and our ability in Christ. And God has just given those things to us for free. And it continues. Verse 15, he says it in a negative way, but there's, we, can, we can see what he's actually saying. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. But when you're in Christ, what is in you? The love of the Father. We have it already. He shows up before we do in the relationship, and he never leaves. We have the love of the Father, so we don't need to love the world. Verse 16, 
all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, they're not from the Father, but they're from the world. That means that God is a giver of things. He's a giver of good gifts. He provides for our needs. And in verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do you hear that? The Father is calling us into something, and it's not something that burns out like a flame. It's eternal. It's forever. He calls us into eternity. That's a big deal. And so this morning, what would John have us do? I think first, he would have us confess that we commit these sins. <laughs> I do. I do. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things are in my life. And so I'm exposed. That's what the light of God does, remember? When we're drawn into the light of God, our sin is exposed. And what should we do, hide in shame? No, we should respond to God in gratitude because what is he doing through passages like this? He's kindly, lovingly, gently showing us what is rotten and temporary in our lives and he's replacing it with something that is rich and permanent. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that good news? That God would love us so much to show us that we are hoping in things that don't last than to give us something that truly does? So it's a good reminder for me this morning that this passage is not about loving God more. It's not about loving God more. It's actually about recognizing his love for us that has been expressed through Jesus Christ. So, there is this thing such as permanent satisfaction and it's only found in one place. God's love is expressed in Jesus Christ. There is this thing such as provision that we, we can't even imagine and it's only found in one place, God's love as expressed in Jesus Christ. There is such a thing as personal significance, but guess where it comes from? Not inside of us, not in our accomplishments. It comes in the love of God as expressed in Jesus Christ. That's all the significance we need. There is such a thing as things that last, and it's only found in one place. Notice a pattern. God's love is expressed to us in Jesus Christ. So here's some questions. Are we supposed to obey God? Yes. Are we supposed to confess our sin? You betcha. Are we supposed to love our neighbor, including our neighbors in the world? Yes. Are we supposed to, 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 to love one another? Yes. Thinking of the old song, are we supposed to be careful little eyes what we watch? Be careful little heart, what we love. Be careful little feet, where we go. Yes, all those things, yes. But the, those things only sprout from one place, our recognition of how much God loved us first. And guess where that is found? In Jesus Christ. There's only one place where the mess that is our love for God can be refined and find focus and that is his love for us first. As we approach the Lord's table this morning, I think it's an appropriate time to, 
allow our hearts to be challenged. Excuse me. <coughs> Awkward. Okay. I think it's an appropriate time for, to let our hearts be challenged, whether we're Christians or not. So I want to read a scripture to you. This is the words of Jesus. Listen to the challenge that Jesus is giving his disciples in Matthew 16. I'm going to read it nice and slowly. I want everybody to close your eyes and bow your heads. I just want you to let the words of Jesus soak in. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? You can open your eyes. Christians, including myself this morning, are we allowing the Spirit to speak into our lives on this topic? We all struggle in these sins, do we not? And so as we hear the words of Jesus and we think about the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians 6, you are bought with a price. You do not belong to yourselves. The question is, are we denying ourselves? Are we denying ourselves as we follow Christ? Are we indulging in the senses and stuff and the pride of life? Or are we leaving all that behind because of what God has done for us and what he provides for us? The hint for you, the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. And that's what this is for, to remind us of the cost that was paid for our souls. Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, he did it for us. And he calls us to follow. Not as a demand, but with arms open. So this morning, I think it's a great opportunity for us to confess with gratitude what's been revealed to our hearts in this passage and then pray to our Jesus, our Father, to break us from those things and then come and eat this bread and drink this cup for the nourishment and the grace and the forgiveness that we so desperately need. For those of you who are here that are, maybe you don't consider yourself to be a Christian, I would ask the same question Jesus asked, is it worth your soul? Is it worth your soul? Jesus in his scriptures does not say to us, change and then we'll talk. He says, I loved you first. There is no rejection with me. Just come. Just come. It's free. And if you think about it in a certain way, yes, it costs you everything, but you gain Jesus Christ. And in that sense, it, there's no, no question what the right answer is. And so if you're here this morning and, and you are struggling through that thought, I'd love nothing more than to talk to you. Steve and Katie will be up here. They'd love nothing more than to talk to you about it. We don't have to talk here. We can go to lunch, whatever you need. But, but is it worth your soul? This morning, in just a moment, we're going to call up the elders. The question would be, who should come? Who should participate? No one who comes forward is worthy of this. But if you are a sinner and you know that, if you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, 
You've confessed that publicly. You've been baptized. You are called worthy on account of him, and you are invited to come and eat, and I would encourage you to do so. Come. For those of you this morning that maybe you don't believe these things, that's a great reason not to come. Or maybe you're just set in your ways and you're thinking, no, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life sound pretty good to me. The scriptures make it clear. This is not the time. First things first. And so let us examine ourselves for just a moment. I'll draw us back together with a prayer of blessing, and then we'll give some instructions and we'll have the Lord's Supper together.